chapter 8 this morning. A better covenant. Who knows what a covenant is? Anybody? Um, I didn't um, until I started reading the Bible and realized that we have an Old Testament. We have a New Testament. Okay, what's a testament? Well, if you do a little bit of study in the language, the word testament actually means promise or covenant. And the word covenant essentially means an agreement. So when you buy a piece of land, there is a covenant or a deed, and it's an understanding that's put on a piece of paper between two parties or through a corporation to an individual or whatever. It's an agreement between two entities that causes them to be able to work together under certain rules and laws. And so in this case, a covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship of commitment, in this case, between God and his people. So to covenant with someone is to have an agreement, and it's drawn up by a deed. It's an understanding that both people have a copy of, and through that understanding, there is a relationship. Now, if someone gets married, it's a covenant, because they are both making promises to one another for, you know, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. And there's other traditional covenantal agreements, but it's built upon that agreement, which is the covenant relationship in marriage. And so we do understand intrinsically what a marriage and what a covenant is, maybe even if you don't realize it. So today in Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to talk about a better covenant, a better agreement. And throughout the book of Hebrews, what we've seen is the writer whoever you might contend for him to be. Some think it's Paul, some think it's Apollos. I'm not going to get into that today because we could go ad nauseum. There are books written, halls of books written on who might have written Hebrews. But the whole theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. You might say, well, he's better than what? And what the writer contends for is that he, uh, Jesus is better than anything, anyone any covenant, any promise, any relationship, any system of worship. And in this case, he's speaking to the Hebrew Christians. These are Jewish people who have seen Jesus or have heard of the testimony of Jesus and have decided that he is their Messiah. And so they put their faith and their trust in him. They repented of their sins. They believed in Jesus. And now they are disciples of Jesus. They are Christians. And so they start following the way. So as a result of that, we have this group of people that many of them are still living in the nation of Israel, and they are used to the practice of going to the temple to make sacrifice in order to deal with sin. And, and in order to worship their God, they would go to the temple during feasts. And if you read the book of Acts, you see that Paul the Apostle would still go to the temple and practice the feasts, not because he had to anymore, but because he realized as a Christian that all of those feasts were little pieces that pointed to the Messiah and all of the things that he would accomplish. So for instance, you have Passover. Passover is a feast that they would celebrate every year. But Passover in the book of Exodus was really them trusting in the blood of a spotless lamb over the doorpost of their door at their house. And as they would trust in the blood of the lamb, the uh, angel of the Lord would pass over and the firstborn in every household 
would die as a judgment from God. But those who did what God said by faith and put the blood on their house, trusting in the spotless blood of the lamb, they would be saved, and their firstborn was spared. And so if you think about that, even just in that first example, the fulfillment of that is found in Jesus as we trust in his blood and we put ourselves under it, his blood applied to our lives makes it so that we are now delivered from the judgment that we deserve because of sin. And so Paul practiced the feast, but no longer because he had to be good in the sight of God, but now he's doing it as an act of, wow, Jesus is so good. And so this covenant that God's made with his people in the Old Testament, the law, we're going to find out was a good covenant. It was God relating to mankind and meeting them where they were at. But what we find out is that it was really a precursor to lead us to the new covenant in Jesus. So we find out this morning that this covenant is taken care of or it's ministered to us by a superior high priest. And it's taken care of in a superior location. And it's built on better promises. So we're going to break that down. But the Jewish people at the time of the writer of this book, they were actually following Jesus, but the temple was still in the Jerusalem. And so there was still smoke constantly rising up. There were still people going and making sacrifices to Yahweh. And they did that because if they didn't make sacrifices, the Old Testament law said, without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission or forgiveness or remover, removal of sin. If they don't go and make a sacrifice, they can't be forgiven. That's the only way. And so many of them are going, okay, I'm following Jesus now. How do I know my sins are forgiven? I didn't take my spotless lamb. I didn't take my turtle doves. I can see the work being done there. I can see the blood spilled. I can see the high priest taking my offering and offering it in the Holy of Holies where no one else would go. But how do I know it's taking place now? Because we don't do any of that. And so the writer here gives some answers to the one that would be tempted to go back to that old sacrificial system. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, he says, this is the main point of these things. Now, if you haven't been with us in chapter 7 or 1 through 7 of this book, you're going, okay, what are these things? Context means everything, right? But these things that he's talking about, the main thing, uh, the main point of these things, we are saying we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. A minister. Now that's kind of a church word, but the word minister means a servant. He's, so he is a servant of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. And so we see here that we have a high priest, and I put there for you in quotes, air quotes, such a high priest. So he's giving a qualifier. Not just any high priest, but we have such a high priest who ministers this new promise or this new agreement. So what are the characteristics of this high priest? Well, in verse 1, three things. He's morally superior to any high priest that they'd ever had before. He's finished the work. It says there in verse 1, who is seated. I don't know about you guys, but I don't sit down until I'm done working. And Jesus is no different. 
the high priest in the Old Testament would never get to sit down because he was never done making sacrifices. And if he got ready to make sacrifices for somebody else, he would have to make a sacrifice for his own sins before anybody even showed up to make their sacrifices. And then number three, he's enthroned in heaven. Now think about it. If there's a throne on earth, we look to a king and we say, wow, look at his position. Look at his power. Look at his authority. Even in nations where they still have a king, we look at their drool, and, not drool, not drool, but jewel-encrusted crown, and we go, wow, it makes us drool. Look at all the gems. Look at all the diamonds. That, that accentuates the fact that they're in power. You know, and so with that, we look at our high priest who is morally superior. I put there for you such a high priest. And if you look back just one chapter in chapter 7, verse 26, it says, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is, look at this, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. 27 says, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. And so in chapter 8 we have here, he's, he's saying we have such a high priest. See, all the things described in those couple of verses list who he is, what he's about. He's finished the work of salvation. He's offered up one time himself completely blameless, just like that spotless lamb. And then he's also enthroned in heaven. Now, location of a minister matters, right? Because here's the deal. There were people, religious people, in the days of Jesus who questioned where God could be met with. And in John chapter 4, if you'll turn there with me, there was a woman that you may have heard described before as the woman at the well. And she got into this theological debate. It started as an everyday conversation. So we're going to read through that conversation. We're going to see that Jesus is eventually going to bring it around to a spiritual conversation. Because Jesus, being a good physician, as a doctor, doesn't deal with our symptoms. He deals with our heart. And he didn't want to talk to her about all the other things that were obviously wrong in her life. He wanted to talk to her about the sin problem she had. So in John chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself never baptized, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, to know the geography of there, in order to get to, Samar to, to, get to Galilee, the Jews who were very high up in the religious stature would never go through Samaria because to go through there would have to mean to go through the scum of the earth. It's like you're going through the bad part of town. And so they would literally walk days to go around Samaria. But Jesus came for all. They, the Jews didn't like the Samarians because the Samaritans, although we think of the good Samaritans, he calls them good because all the other Samaritans were not known as good. Because during one of the captivities, they had gotten dispersed, 
and they started worshiping other gods and mixed their religion together with the worship of Yahweh. And so the Jews go, well, we are the more pure line, and they look down on the Samaritans. So because they thought they were better than them, they naturally did what people think they, what people do when they think they're better than you. They won't have anything to do with you. And so the disciples were like, what do you mean we got to go through Samaria? And Jesus said he must. He said, I must needs, old King Jimmy. I must needs go through Samaria. It's, it's important. And so he goes through. He needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now look at this response. The woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Now there was something about his appearance, perhaps, Maybe he had an accent, but she knew that he was Jewish. And so if you've seen a painting of Jesus and he has red hair and he's white, probably doesn't look like Jesus actually looked. Just a guess. You know, whatever, whatever thing that you think that Jesus looked like, I think we probably have the wrong idea. Actually, Isaiah says that he had no form or comeliness that we would even want to be with him. He didn't, he, he didn't look like Tom Cruise. He didn't look like whoever you think is handsome. It actually says that he wasn't good looking. He was common. I love this. I can relate to that, you know. And so here we are in John chapter 4, and he starts talking with this woman who expects that she would never be talked to by a Jew. How sad is that? The Jews were to be a light to all nations before they even knew that God had called them to be alike to all the nations as Christians. They were supposed to have such a relationship with God that other nations would want it. And yet they did what we naturally do. (laughs) They made despicable neighbors. You wouldn't want to live next to them. And so he said, if you knew, excuse me, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. If you knew who I was, you'd be even more surprised than just the fact that I'm talking to you. Because he's fully God. God is speaking to her, and she goes, what most people would say, I don't think that God even wants to have anything to do with me. I know what I've done, and so she's already self-condemned. And so the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She's still talking about drawing water. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You can't say thirst that many times and not take a drink for me. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not thirst nor come here to draw again. Imagine if someone said to you, 
hey, these groceries are good, but if you eat the bread of life, you'll never have to get groceries again. Great. I'd love to avoid Walmart. That sounds great. I, w- I don't even want to go to Aldi. I don't want to go to spend grocery money, you know, and, and so she's thinking along the lines of physical thirst. Okay, I don't have to come here anymore. Great. I don't have to be self-condemned by all the people that don't want to talk to me. But the woman answered, excuse me, then Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. So he starts talking to her about her everyday life, and she responds and says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her something that only she would know. Remember, he's just walked up to her for the first time, so only God and her could know this. He says, you have well said, I have no husband, for you, excuse me, Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So she goes strictly from this physical conversation, and all of a sudden she's super spiritual. I perceive that you're a prophet because he just told her something that he couldn't possibly know unless he had an insight with God. And uh, the woman said to him, um, and, and then she starts to talk about where to worship because that was the big point of contention in that day. The Jews say that worship should only happen in Jerusalem. And he says, but our fathers worshiped on this mountain. So it's all about location. This is the place where you meet with God, but the Jews say it's over there. And Jesus says something to her that she probably didn't understand right then, nor did anyone else. But we see the fulfillment in Christ where Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The location. Location, location, location. He says the time's coming where people all over the world will be able to worship me, and it doesn't matter where they go. And I love this, because I don't know about you guys, but it's, it's too expensive for me to fly to Israel every five minutes. If I want to worship God, I need a meeting place. And so the meeting place that we have is actually straight through Jesus to heaven, because we have a place where we worship our God. He's not located in Jerusalem. He's not located in Samaria. He's not located in Ironton, Missouri, or Pilot Knob, or on Cedar Hill. He's located in the heavens. So we have access through Jesus Christ, who is the forerunner of all who would come by faith. He's entered in through the veil in heaven, not the earthly temple. And so he is exalted. He's given position. He's given power. He's given authority. Now, I know what I would do with that. But what does Jesus do with his authority? I have two pictures for you there. Um, I could have drawn them, but I Googled them. Uh, Stick figures, that's how I roll, but I couldn't draw them in 3D. So you have the one on the top, which is what we typically think of with someone that has power. They get up on a block, a pedestal, and they tell other people what to do. Now, how many of you, think about it realistically, think of God like somebody standing on top of a hill forcing you to do things. Many people assent to the idea that God is loving, that he's caring, but they always feel like he's oppressing them. 
the bottom picture is more realistic. There we have a leader. Now, ignore the bottom where he looks like he's walking off a cliff. But look at the man in front. He is a servant, and he is a leader. Google, you know, gave me this picture, and I didn't notice till just now that he's walking off a cliff. I guess the idea is there, many times we follow leaders, like lemmings, and we're walking off the same cliff that they're walking off of. Our leaders have no insight to what they're standing on. You know, I look at ours, and I kind of see that as Jesus, and the guy behind him is Peter. You know, everybody's rough on Peter for following Jesus and saying, can I walk on the water too? But how many of you have stepped on the water? He's walked further than I ever did, and I don't know any other people that walked on water. So here we have Jesus being a given position, power, and authority because he surrendered his life. What does Jesus do with power, authority, and position? Well, I think many people are afraid to surrender to him because they think of a worldly leader. But turn with me to Mark chapter 10. I win. He says there in Mark chapter 10 and verse 42, Jesus called them to himself. He's speaking to his disciples. This is right after James and John have wanted position, you know, and they get their mom to ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, uh, can my sons, when you get your kingdom, can they sit at your right and left hand? asking for a position of prominence. And um, and Jesus, he says this to them. Verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. And then he says this based on his example, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to sacrifice, to give his life as a ransom for many. So he uses his position, his power, and his authority to serve. Greatness is in serving. But then turn with me to John chapter 13, And I believe we see one of the greatest examples of what Jesus did with his power, his position, and his authority. The Son of God, the King of all kings. It says there in verse 1, they had just taken the feast of Passover, probably not realizing that the Passover lamb was giving them the feast. When Jesus knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, he rose from supper with all this authority given to him by God, it says he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel, and he girded himself. Now, if we did this at a meal, people would be like, this is awkward. But what he's done is he's taken the form of the lowest slave in their households in that day. 
He took off his clothes, he girded himself with a towel, and he begins to do what we have doormats for. He literally takes the form of a doormat. You ever hear somebody say that Jesus never called you to be a doormat? That's not biblical. Jesus became a doormat for us so we get to do the same thing. So he took the form of a doormat. He took a towel and girded himself with it. He got down on his knees. This is God. Don't think about a human being. Think about God getting down on his knees and washing cow poop and manure off of your feet. That's what Jesus does with power, by the way. He doesn't stand up and go, you listen to me. He gets down and he says, let me wash your feet. By the way, we can tell him no. He gives us free will to say, no, I don't need you. Peter even does that as an example, I believe. He says, oh, no, no, you're not going to wash my feet. He says, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part of me. And so then he says, okay, wash the whole thing. Like, let's full-on sponge bath. He says such awkward things. Again, I can relate to that. And so here we are in John chapter 13. We see what Jesus does with power. So our high priest, such a high priest, ministers this agreement, this covenant. So he's taken a superior location. Now, sorry for all the words. I apologize every week. It got to be more words than I thought it would be. But they could see the temple in their day in Jerusalem. Their question is, is Jesus taking care of the work that we used to get done in the temple? The Old Testament required sacrifice for reconciliation. Reconciliation is where you break down the barrier between two individuals. And that was the sacrifice. So how do we know that this is happening? We can't see him. So in verse 3 through 5, he goes on to say this. Every high priest appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one also has something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And so he gives three answers. And I stole this from Warren Wearsby. So if you're listening to the recording, I'm not plagiarizing. I'm just rearranging the furniture. I think he'd be okay with it if it gives more understanding. But verse 3, he gives a logical answer. Verse 3, he says, and this is something that they fully understood. Verse 3, he says, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that this one, Jesus, also has something to offer. And if you look at John chapter 10, it talks about what he came to offer. John chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, and all who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door, and if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Then he talks about himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
But a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. So he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He was telling them what he was getting ready to do. And so this high priest that we have has something to offer. He lays down his life for the sheep. But then in verse 4 of Hebrews 8, he gives a genealogical answer. See, the word logical is in all of them. So you got the, the preacher kind of making, you know, tying things together. But the logical answer, the genealogical answer, and the typological answer. So in verse 4, he's again saying this. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. We've already talked about the fact that he was not a priest according to the Levites. He was a priest according to chapter 7 says, the line of Melchizedek, which is eternal. So the genealogical answer is that he is a priest, but not like the priest that they've known. But then there's the typological answer, which is just a big word that means that he's a type or a shadow or essentially an earthly analogy to point to the eternal sanctuary. So he says there in verse 6, excuse me, verse 5, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. Remember, he was given instructions. And it says there, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So God revealed to him. And if you've ever read this, the, the you know, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see it, you'll, it's easy to get bogged down in. Many of you fell asleep before you got past the first chapter because it's just like, why do I need to know this? Well, because all of those things in the Old Testament, including the tabernacle, exactly how it was built was a blueprint that would describe the Holy of Holies and the outer court and the very presence of God, the meeting place where people would do business with God, was foreshadowed in the blueprint. The blueprint was where they were used to worshiping. They were used to worshiping God and meeting with him in this tiny building, the tabernacle. Eventually it becomes Solomon's temple. And I've looked at videos, I've been to the Temple Mount, I've seen all these sites, they are pretty amazing. But they were all a type of what heaven's going to be like. And so we have this place that we worship. It's the true tabernacle in heaven, and that's where our promises are. We're anchored there. But the reality is many of us, many of these believers, were trying to worship God, essentially. It would be like us trying to live in our houses before they're built, but we'd live in them on the blueprints. Now think about what blueprints look like. Can you imagine, hey, I just bought a piece of ground. I'm going to build a house for my family. You unroll the blueprints, you lay it down, and you all try to get into them. Does that work? No. I mean, it's a great picture, and I can imagine living there, but imagining living somewhere when it's cold out is not helpful. It's actually kind of pointless. It's disappointing. It's hopeless. You're cold. You're homeless. And so, in the same way, trying to worship God now that that old covenant has been fulfilled Trying to live in the blueprints is just falling short of what it could be. And so 
The temple is great, but it's only a blueprint. The true location of God's temple is heaven. And so this covenant is built on better promises. So this better covenant, based on better promises, starts in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. And if you remember with me in 1 Timothy chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, verse 5 through 6, it actually says that there that is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, the man, Christ Jesus. And so he is the mediator. He's the one that we have access to the Father through, the only one. But he's also in heaven. So as they spent all this time talking about the minister of the covenant, we talked about the location where the covenant is actually practiced, we get to now see that the promises that it's built on are the bedrock. Kelly talked about this morning, the, the foundation of the temple was built, and then they praised God. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that should strike you a little funny. Because if you're building a house, and you get the foundation, you're excited, but when it's done is when you're excited because you get to go in. You get to decorate. You get to paint. You get to start enjoying it. But <laughs> the foundation is built, and you start praising? Why is that? Well, they should, because that is what if the foundation is faulty, so is the house. If the cornerstone isn't there, it's not square, it's going to fall over. If the blocks aren't put there precisely, you're going to build and it's never going to be square. You're always going to have to be getting out the protractor and trying to figure out you know, what angles to do. But he's going to talk about the foundation of this covenant. The covenant is only as good as the promises that it's based on. And so... In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, is what he's quoting here. So in verse 6, it says, See, excuse me, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So they had already been given promises in the Old Testament, though, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have a relationship with God. They wouldn't have an agreement. So they had promises, but what he's saying is these are better. So in verse 7, he says, If the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So there's a lot to unpack. 
So verse 7 through 9, he promises God's grace. Now, the fault with the law was not that the law wasn't good at what it did. Galatians actually says that the law was perfect in converting the soul. The psalmist wrote about that. The law was never meant to save. It was only meant to point to you and say, you need a savior. If you've ever tried to live by the first of the, ten, the, first of the 613 commandments, all you'll get is frustrated. You won't get free. You'll be frustrated. And so the law was meant to show us that we need a savior. And in Galatians chapter 3, it actually says there, Galatians 3, verse 19, says, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. And a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? And the answer is no. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. He says that the law never gave life, it only brought death. If you did not follow the commands, there was a curse. There was judgment. And so he says, but the scripture has confined all under sin. We found that in Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And so, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor, or the old King James says, our schoolmarm. It was a teacher that would keep us at bay until Christ came. That we might be justified no longer by our works, but by faith. And after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. And so we don't, the law is not null and void. It's still good at what it does, but it's, not, it's been fulfilled now. So I have there for you that the fault with the law was not that the law wasn't good. It was that they couldn't keep it. So the old covenant, the law, said, do these things and you will live. There was a blessing attached to obedience. But what if you have a bad day? What if your uh, give-a-dang's busted? What if you just go off the deep end? Then what? It's done. You have no relationship with God. But the promise of God's grace brings in this new covenant. And in verse 10, he talks about how the new covenant... We no longer have to do things in order to live. He says, the work is done. Now, just believe in me and be. Believe and be. Be what I make you. And I love this because if you read in this quotation from Jeremiah 31, I want you to focus in on something real quick. He says, starting in, let's see, starting at behold in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will, there's an I will statement, I will make a promise with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers, when I took them by the hand and led them. And then he says in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make. There's no we in there. 
We was the problem. We were the problem. We were the fault. We couldn't keep it. But he says, I will. I will make with the house of Israel after those days a promise. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God. And look at this. They shall be. I will and you will be. How many of you guys spend time just being? I'm not, I'm not the type to just sit and be. I like to do. And then I get exhausted and I crash for several hours. And then I do. And then I get tired. And then I do. And then I get tired. Is that your relationship with Jesus? Because if it is, you're not trusting in the promise. We have to believe. We don't have to earn his favor. We, don't, we have to believe and be. And this is hard for us because we're hard-working Americans. But as believers, believing and being is our existence. And so he says, None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall already know me. And so this covenant is built on better promises. The promise, uh, in the last slide, the promise of God's grace, and then the promise of internal change. The law was all about what you do externally, and earn God's favor. Grace is all about God changing our heart from the inside and then changing the external behavior. Stop trying to change your behavior and start letting God change your heart. Because once God changes your heart, the body will follow. And so the promise in verse 11 and 12 is the promise of forgiveness. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will, again, I will, be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. Look at this. I will remember no more. God's promising to forget. Not based on sweeping it under the rug, but based on what Jesus has done. Believe in me, and I will overlook, I will cover, I will cleanse, and I will remember no more. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Do you believe that? Do you, you probably know that, but do you believe that God's like that with you? Let that be an anointing salve to heal your wounds from the past. You, If God says you're forgiven, you are. Accept it. Believe it. Relish in it. Enjoy it. Forgiveness is awesome. It sets us free. We are captive to what we fear and what we carry guilt about. Jesus said, whom the Son of Man has set free, he is free indeed. So, if he set you free and you're still holding on to the lock like it's locked, that's on you. Believe and be forgiven. So the promise is then also of eternal blessing. So in verse 13, he says this. In this, he says, a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. For them, this epistle was written just in time for them. Because God knew that in 70 AD, the temple that they were tempted to go back and trust was going to be taken from them. The Romans would come in to destroy it block by block. They would knock it down. They would burn it to get all the gold out of the temple. It was fulfilled prophecy. So the thing that they were trusting, God was 
knowing that it was going to be taken away from them, he did not want them to be shaken. What are the things in your life that you're trusting in that can be taken? Are you willing to let go of them knowing that God, in his sovereignty and his perfect knowledge, knows that they can be taken and they might be? Matthew chapter 26 as we close. been talking about the covenant let's go to where jesus talked about the covenant you might say i don't remember jesus ever talking about a covenant well let's go check it out see if these things are so matthew chapter 26 we've talked about passover several times this morning it says as they were eating jesus took bread he blessed it and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Notice what he does with the bread. He blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. That's what he did with his body. They didn't know, but he was saying, This is getting ready to happen. Quicker than you think. He says, Take this and eat it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, and he gave thanks for it, and he gave it. So he gives it, he gives thanks for it, he gives it. Drink from it, all of you, for look at this, this is my blood of the new covenant. This is my blood of the new promise. You know, little boys want to cut themselves and do, now, I don't know if they do it anymore. We understand better things, but, you know, blood brothers, they cut their hands and they shake hands. The old movies, Indians and cowboys, and they cut themselves and they say, hey, we're one now. They shake hands. You make a promise in blood, it means something. Well, that's intrinsic to humanity because we were made by a God who makes promises in blood. His own blood. His own flesh and blood. So it says, this is my blood of the new promise, the new agreement, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It's shed for the forgiveness of guilt, for the forgiveness of weight, for the sins to be removed. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So anybody who partakes of this sin offering and has eaten his body, essentially, and is partaking in his blood and trusting in those promises, he's made a promise that as you remember him and as you believe and be in this covenant, that he's not going to drink of the fruit until the day where we all drink it together with him where he's going in heaven. By the way, that's another promise. That's a promise to look forward and live for that day where we get to sit down and have the real meal, not just one cracker, not just one. I believe that when we sit down with him, he will have real wine. It won't be grape juice. We won't get addicted to it. And I believe at that day, it will be a joyous occasion it'll be the best feast you've ever been to but you'll never get full and jesus is literally going to be there sitting at the head of the table pray father we thank you for this promise i thank you for our minister of the promise for jesus i thank you that he served us and led us in the way that we should serve and i thank you that he was offered on the altar for us I still don't understand it, but I'm grateful for it. And I pray that this morning, if there's anyone who's here 
who is realizing that they are living with you in an agreement that's old and has passed away and they haven't fully embraced the new covenant, the new agreement that you did it all and all we have to do is truly believe and be. Father, free them up. Give them the ability to give that all to you. To rest in the finished work of Christ. To enjoy the fact that we can lounge and be in your presence and that we don't have to worry about being smoked because there's some sin that hasn't been dealt with. We have a high priest that is able to understand our weakness and yet has made sacrifice so that our sin can be forgiven and removed. Help us not to continue to walk in guilt or in shame, but to truly believe and live like we've been forgiven. Father, I'm grateful for my forgiveness. I'm grateful that you have washed me, cleansed me, and that you still forgive the junk that I struggle with. And you're still working on me. And I will not be perfect till the day I'm in heaven. But until then, Lord, I want to I wanna live for you in the best way I can. No longer because I have to, but because I want to. I want to please you. So, Father, help us to live in the get-to Christianity and not in the have-to. In Jesus' name, amen.